My text this Lord's Day is taken from Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But thou, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me, that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. We continue our series through the prophecy of Micah and come to chapter 5 this Lord's Day. Our Lord taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come. I ask you, for what do we pray when we plead with the Lord that He would hasten His kingdom? Well, question 102 of the Shorter Catechism asks this very question. What do we pray for in the second petition? That is the second petition of the Lord's Prayer. And the answer given is this. In the second petition, which is, Thy kingdom come, we pray that Satan's kingdom may be destroyed and that the kingdom of grace may be advanced, ourselves and others brought into it and kept in it, and that the kingdom of glory may be hastened. You see, dear ones, Christ's kingdom is not merely a future kingdom. That will be manifested when He returns to judge the world and establish His eternal kingdom. But His kingdom is now. His kingdom has come already. We are to pray that His kingdom will continue to come in our own lives. That in our own lives, Satan, the world and the flesh will be subdued more and more and more by the power of His grace and His kingdom. And that all around us, in our church, that we would see more of Christ's grace manifested, His mercy poured forth, more holiness in our own lives as a congregation. That we would see this in our nation that God would restore to us godly leaders who would establish righteous laws and constitutions according to the constitution even of our forefathers. Christ's kingdom, dear ones, is manifested in history every day as He sets up His rule in the lives of poor, helpless sinners who have been rescued from the kingdom of Satan through faith in Jesus Christ alone. His kingdom is established in our lives. And Christ's kingdom, dear ones, is not static. Christ's kingdom is moving. It is moving. It is always moving forward in our lives and in the world every day as the Lord marches us into enemy territory to undergo trials so as to subdue this or that sin in our lives and to replace it with His grace like patience 
with faith, with contentment and thanksgiving. And what Christ is doing in individual lives, dear ones, he is doing as well in his people collectively and corporately. There is no doubt, dear ones, nor uncertainty that Jesus Christ shall be victorious. In fact, that He is already victorious in principle. There is no doubt or uncertainty to that fact. You remember that in Philippians chapter 2, the Lord, through the Apostle Paul, says that there is coming a day when every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And what the Spirit would have you know today, dear ones, is that Christ is already victorious and that He rules even in the midst of His enemies. You see, it's one thing to say that Jesus Christ rules, but it's another thing to recognize that He rules even in the midst of His enemies. This is exactly what is said in Psalm 110, in verses 1 and 2. There we find these words, The Lord said unto my Lord, Set thou at my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of thy strength out of Zion, rule thou in the midst of thine enemies. And so the Lord, even now, from His throne in heaven, sends forth His power to rule through His church, even though His people are besieged all around by enemies. Dear people of God, the Lord would have you know that the presence of sin, the presence of trials, the presence of death, the presence of divisions in families and in the church is no evidence that He does not reign supremely over all. For He has already told us that this aspect of His reign would be exercised during this period of time in which we live. It would be exercised even in the presence of many enemies. But He has promised He will deliver us out of them all. Whether immediately or by degrees, whether in this life or in the next, whether miraculously or by ordinary means, we shall overcome by the power of His gracious kingdom. This Lord's Day, dear ones, we shall consider the word of the Lord as found in the first six verses of Micah 5. And the main points to be covered in the sermon this Lord's Day are these three. First of all, the captivity of Israel. Secondly, the deliverer of Israel. And thirdly, the victory of Israel. Our first main point then, the captivity of Israel from Micah 5.1. That verse says this, Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops, he hath laid siege against us. They shall smite the judge of Israel with a rod upon the cheek. 
The Lord having prepared his people, Israel, for the travail that was shortly to come upon them in chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, which we covered last Lord's Day, he continues in verse 1 the same theme when he says, Now gather thyself in troops, O daughter of troops. This appears to be a call unto Israel and Judah to prepare itself against invading Assyrian and Babylonian troops that would besiege Samaria and Jerusalem. The northern kingdom of Israel was in fact led into Assyrian captivity in 732 B.C., while the southern kingdom of Judah was led into Babylonian captivity in 586 B.C. But why? Why did the Lord lead His people into captivity? Wasn't Israel and Judah, weren't they the people of God? Well, the Lord gives us the reason for having led His people into captivity in 2 Chronicles chapter 36. <clears throat> Notice what the Lord says, beginning with verse 11. Zedekiah was one and twenty years old when he began to reign and reigned eleven years in Jerusalem. And he, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord his God and humbled not himself before Jeremiah the prophet, speaking from the mouth of the Lord. And he also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear by God. But he stiffened his neck and hardened his heart from turning unto the Lord God of Israel. We see that the nation did not listen to the word of the Lord as it came forth from his ministers. We see that there was covenant breaking, national covenant breaking. Zedekiah had taken a, a covenant on behalf of himself and the nation not to break and not to rebel against Nebuchadnezzar. He took it in the name of the Lord God, and he broke covenant. And the Lord God of their fathers, it says in verse 15, sent to them... I'm sorry, let me read verse um, 14 first. Moreover, all the chief of the priests and the people transgressed very much after all the abominations of the heathen and polluted the house of the Lord which he had hallowed in Jerusalem. Corrupt worship led to the captivity of Israel, polluting, corrupting the worship of God. Verse 15, And the Lord God of their fathers sent to them by His messengers, rising up betimes and sending because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. The Lord not only sent one prophet, one minister, He sent many to proclaim unto them their sin, to repent, to turn to the living God. But they took no heed. They turned their backs. They became dull of hearing. The more that the Lord spoke unto them, the more hardened their hearts became, even though the Lord sent because He had compassion upon His people. But verse 16 says, They mocked the messengers of God and despised His words and misused His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people till there was no remedy. That's a very good remedy to bring God's judgment upon a nation to follow in those paths. 
Israel's king, according to our text, is captured and humiliated by the Babylonians. The temple of the Lord has been burned and destroyed. The city of Zion lies in desolation. The strong walls that once protected and uh, defended them from their enemies have now been broken down and friend and foe alike have equal access into Zion. If there was just cause, dear ones, as we find in Lamentations, a book that is given to Jeremiah's weeping over the fall of Jerusalem, because of the desolation that has been brought upon the people of God, if there was just cause for Jeremiah to weep, he says, my my eyes are like rivers of water when I consider the desolation of my people. Is there not more just cause for us today? Not only are we to weep for the downfall of Jerusalem and Israel as a people, but we are to as well weep for the downfall, the backsliding of God's people within His church. This should cause us, dear ones, great grief and sorrow. We should find ourselves many times pouring out our hearts into the Lord like Jeremiah that He would restore and build again the walls of the city of Zion, of His people in Jerusalem, His new covenant people of God. Moving from the captivity of Israel, we come now to the second main point where we learn of a deliverer who is to come unto Israel. In Micah 5.2 But thou, Bethlehem Ephratah, though thou be little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of thee shall he come forth unto me that is to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Dear ones, do you see how God, in the midst of such predictions of suffering, does not leave His people without a promise to which they can cling. Even when it seems as though circumstances couldn't become much worse. And when Israel no doubt felt at their very lowest point of discouragement, perhaps had fallen into despair, God sends forth His promise to comfort His people's hearts and to give them a certain hope of deliverance through Christ. And so He does with us, dear people of God. At that very point, how often have you been at that point of discouragement due to falling into some sin, due to some chronic pain in your, in your body, due to some financial setback, 
due to the loss of a loved one, whatever it may be, you have been in that place and how God has given to you His promise to embrace and to cling to. And it has pulled you through every single time. The promises of God. I know that I certainly have found myself many times in my life in those spots. And it was the promises of God. Promises like this give you just a a few of my favorite promises that I find so comforting in various trials through which I pass. Isaiah 26, 3 and 4. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever. For in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Isaiah chapter 40. Verses 29 through 31. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might, He increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary and they shall walk and not faint. Or when overcome with a besetting sin in our lives, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return into the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon Isaiah 55, 7. The invitation which the Lord Jesus gives unto all who are weary and heavy laden to come unto Him in Matthew 11, verses 28 and 29, to take His yoke upon us and learn of Him. For He says, I am meek and lowly in heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls. I love how the Lord, in the midst of Paul's thorn in the flesh, praying three times that he might be delivered, but he says unto Paul, My grace is sufficient for thee. My grace is sufficient. Your strength isn't sufficient. Your wisdom is not sufficient. Your power your resources, but My grace will see you through from beginning to end. And then, even the verse we read earlier in Philippians 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth Me. Not something. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth Me. Dear ones, in the midst of your hour of testing and trials, reach out to the promises of God and cling to those promises. Embrace them. They are true.
All the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ Jesus. Likewise, in Micah 5.2, the Lord gives to His people a promise of a coming ruler who will prevail over all their enemies and whose kingdom will never end. And God, as we see in this text in verse 1, God removes Israel's king, but promises to give them instead the king of kings. What the Lord takes away, even in His fatherly anger and displeasure with us, He always replaces, dear ones, with that which is far more precious and enduring. The king of kings, according to Micah 5.2, would not be born in the royal city of Jerusalem, but in the humble, inconspicuous city of Bethlehem. Like David of old, who arose from such a humble, lowly station in life as a common shepherd to become the shepherd of Israel, the king of Israel, so the Lord Jesus Christ would not come to earth with all the pomp and all the circumstance of an earthly king. His birth, dear ones, was not proclaimed in the palace of Herod. Herod learned secretly that Christ was to be born in Bethlehem, but it was not announced and heralded throughout the palace. But rather, his birth was announced by angels from heaven to lowly shepherds feeding their flocks. His kingdom was not to have its origin or authority from the kings and the kingdoms of this world, but rather from God who reigns in heaven. Dear ones, the Lord would encourage you not to look upon yourself as having no significant service in God's kingdom due to your lowly station in life. The Lord delights to take those who are humble and lowly minded, who have a low station in life, who are simple, who simply are devoted to the Lord their God. He delights to take such people and to raise them and exalt them to places of honor and of use within His kingdom. In Psalm 113, verses 7 through 9, He takes the poor from the dung heap. He raises them up to sit with princes. He takes the barren woman who cannot produce children and gives to her children, but she is a happy mother. The Lord delights in blessing His people and taking them when they humble themselves, when they recognize their lowly station, and blessing them and using them in His kingdom, just as He did David. And the Lord came in that same way to demonstrate this very principle to us. You may look in your hands, dear ones, and find only one talent to be used for the Lord. But the Lord says, use it for my glory. Use it. And the Lord says, I will multiply it. God, help us not to show contempt for, the, for even that one talent He places in our hand 
to show contempt by belittling it, speaking derogatorily of it, demeaning that one talent that God gives to us and hiding it in the ground when it should be used, taken, used for His glory, when it should be used in such a way as to bring glory to Christ. The Lord has said in Luke 16.10, He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. Don't, dear ones, don't despise the day of small or inconspicuous beginnings or things. Even the faith of a mustard seed, which is the smallest seed, even the faith of a mustard seed, the Lord said, by His grace is able to move mountains. Take what God has given to you and use it for His glory. Commit all of your ways into the Lord and He will prosper your paths. In Micah 5.2, the one who is to rule Israel is not a mere human being. Indeed, He is a human being. He is fully man, but He's not a mere human being. For it says, His goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Here we have in this one verse a description of both the humanity and the deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. He would be born in Bethlehem, but yet He was the same One who was from all eternity. The same truth is stated by Micah's contemporary, Isaiah, in chapter 9, verses 6 and 7. There we read, Isaiah says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And His name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of His government and peace, there shall be no end. Upon the throne of David and upon His kingdom, to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. This babe that was born in Bethlehem is the same one whose goings forth are from eternity. He is the King, the King of kings. John says of Him in John 1.1 that He's the Word who was with God and is God. That all things came into being from Him or by Him. And that nothing that has come into being came into being without Him. This is the Creator who has become the King of Israel. And yet, interestingly, when Christ declared Himself to be this One, the great I Am of the Old Testament in John 8.58, the Jews took up stones to kill him for blasphemy. A prophecy so clear from Micah 5.2 was not believed by the greater part of Israel who heard the gospel of Christ and saw the many miracles that he performed. 
You see, they looked for a king who would first conquer all their political enemies. Rather than a king who would first conquer their greater enemies, their spiritual enemies, the enemies of their soul. He came riding on a lowly donkey. But they wanted a king who rode upon a conquering white stallion. You see, dear ones, what a deadly sin is unbelief. And dear ones, unbelief not only can take root in the hearts and does take root in the hearts of those who are non-Christians. Unbelief can take root in our own hearts and lives. For unbelief, dear ones, is simply not to cling to the promises of God. Unbelief, in effect, is to call God a liar. When we despair of God's promises, of His keeping power, when we fall prey to worry and anxiety in our lives, we in effect are calling God a liar, that He will not take care of us, that He will not preserve us, that He will not provide for all that we need. That's unbelief. It is calling God a liar. In Psalm 78, this is exactly what Israel, as they left Egypt, did with the Lord their God. Psalm 78, verse 19 says, Yea, they spake against God. They said, Can God furnish a table in the wilderness? Here we are. We're many miles from Egypt. We don't have the provisions that we need to live, to care for our children. Can God provide a table to feed us all? Where is the food coming from? Where is the clothing and the shelter coming from? How will God take care of us? How will God bring us into the land? There are many enemies out there. Can He take care of us? In fact, they went as far as to say, God brought us out here to destroy us and our children. See, one sin of unbelief left, led to another sin of unbelief. Of not recognizing that they were calling God a liar in one instance, they began to, and they continued along the same path of unbelief. In verse 22 of the same chapter of Psalm 78, it says, They believed not in God and trusted not in His salvation. They believed not in God. That was the root sin. When they said, ask the question, can God really provide for us? And then in verse 41, Yea, they turned back and tempted God and limited the Holy One of Israel. They limited the Holy One of Israel. Anytime we put any limitation upon God by saying God cannot provide for us, or even questioning and doubting whether God will provide for us, take care of us, we limit the Holy One of Israel. You know, it's a very 
interesting thing to listen to our prayers. Here is the Almighty God, the King of the universe. Here is the Lord Jesus Christ who has become the King of kings. Listen to your prayers. Are your prayers very small, insignificant requests that you make unto God? Do you come to the Lord as if, I can't ask too much, Lord, of you? Or do you come laying your heart open before the Lord, pouring out your heart and saying, because God, you are so great, you are so mighty and powerful, I'm going to ask great and mighty things of of thee. I'm going to ask, O Lord, that thou would bring forth thy salvation throughout the whole world, that thou would destroy every hindrance and every impediment to the spread of the gospel, that thou would raise up many ministers who would faithfully proclaim the truth, many elders and deacons, that thou would take forth the truth and bless it in every nation. That thou would destroy Antichrist and bring in the fullness of the Gentiles. Thou would bless my family, O Lord, that thou would bring salvation to my children and to my grandchildren for generations to come. I'm going to ask for great things because thou art a great king. See, this is the King that we pray unto. The Lord Jesus Christ is the King who is invested with such power that it is impossible for Him not to prevail over all His and our enemies. If He prevailed over all sickness by healing all who came to Him in the days of His earthly ministry, if He prevailed over Satan and demons by resisting the temptations of Satan and casting out the demons, if He prevailed over the rejection of loved ones by finding His approval not in men, but in His Father who is in heaven, if He prevailed over hunger by multiplying the few fish and the scraps of bread to feed literally thousands, if He prevailed over the fury of the tempestuous storm by merely calling to the winds and the waves to be still, if He prevailed over the anguish of death by raising the poor widow's only son, then, dear ones, how much more He has prevailed over sin, over temptation in that besetting sin in your lives, over the sting of death and the condemning wrath of God for all those who come unto Him with empty hands and simply embrace Him alone for their eternal salvation. There is nothing, dear ones, that is impossible to the Lord our God. How big is your God? That's the question. How big is your God in your mind? Do you suffer from unbelief, distrust of the living God? Third and final point this Lord's Day is the victory of Israel. 
In verses 3 through 6, we note the victory granted to Israel. Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return unto the children of Israel. And he shall stand and feed in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall abide. For now shall he be great unto the ends of the earth. And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land. And when he shall tread in our palaces, then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. And they shall waste the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod in the entrances thereof. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he cometh into our land and when he treadeth within our borders. When will the king of kings bring this promised salvation and victory to Israel? According to Micah 5.3, Therefore will he give them up until the time that she which travaileth hath brought forth. Then the remnant of his brethren shall return into the children of Israel. In other words, the Lord says, Therefore, because their king, though going forth from eternity, would be born in Bethlehem, he would give his people up to distress and trouble until the time that the virgin shall travail and give birth to their king. At that time, when at the time of the incarnation, when the Virgin Mary gave birth to the Lord Jesus Christ, at that time, the King would bring in His promised salvation and not only unite the remnant of His brethren of Judah and Israel to Himself, but would even stand and feed as the Good Shepherd all those nations, even unto the ends of the earth, according to Micah 5.4. Here it speaks of the remnant of His people. That is the lesser part of His people. This is the period in which we now live. This is not when all Israel shall be saved, of which it's speaking here. This is when the remnant of His people are drawn unto Him. This is what is spoken of in Romans chapter 11, verse 5. That there is a remnant according to the election of grace. Here we have a preview of the gospel of salvation going forth from Christ the King to Israel, but not only to Israel, but also to the Gentiles, to the uttermost ends of the earth throughout the whole world. How will the King of kings shepherd his sheep and feed them? How will this be accomplished? Well, while he's upon the earth, certainly he will do so personally during his earthly ministry. But after his ascension into heaven, he will continue to feed his sheep through faithful under-shepherds. In Acts chapter 20, verse 28, 
through 31, we see that this is, in fact, the calling of those who are pastors. Where Paul says to the elders, the pastors in Ephesus, he says, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and to all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. There is the commission to feed the flock of God, to care for God's people. This is done through the king to those whom he calls into his service, commissions to go forth as ambassadors on his behalf. But he continues in verse 29, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore watch and remember that by the space of three years I cease not to warn everyone night and day with tears. You see, the calling of a shepherd is not only to feed the sheep with that which is truth, which is going to build them up in their faith, but is also a part of his calling to warn, to admonish, to say that's error. Don't walk in that path. That's sin. Avoid that at all costs. That as well is the calling of a shepherd. Christ leads his sheep by means of his under-shepherds. Faithful shepherds, dear ones, lead the flock by their word and example into green pastures and beside the still waters. They don't drive or beat the sheep. They don't burden them with the mere traditions of men as did the Pharisees. Faithful shepherds pray, in fact, that they might decrease in order that the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of kings, might increase. And faithful shepherds know the voice of the Lord and they follow Him wherever He leads by His will. Faithful shepherds, dear ones, like Jesus Christ, will not break the bruised reed nor quench the smoking flax. Wherever there is the least amount of grace, a faithful shepherd will not crush it and destroy it. But in the weakest of Christians, He will help to bring that one along, to grow in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, dear ones, the rod and the staff of faithful shepherds should be a comfort unto them, unto the sheep, for they not only warn and defend them against that which is dangerous to their souls. See, a rod and a staff is used to defend the sheep from from wolves and animals. But it's also used when necessary to strike the sheep in order to keep them walking along the path. It's done not to hurt them. Not because the sheep are hated, but because they are loved. Because it is more important to preserve their soul for all eternity than their comfort for a period of time. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 4.21, 
Paul says to the Corinthians, do you want me to come with a rod unto you? You want me to bring the rod of discipline with you or to come in love and meekness and gentleness? Do what I tell you to do according to the word of Christ, Paul says, so that I don't have to come with a rod. And dear ones, because we so desperately need faithful shepherds, this should be one of the prayers that is constantly upon our lips in family worship, in secret worship, and in corporate worship. God supply us with faithful laborers to go out into the harvest. In Matthew chapter 9, the Lord Jesus makes this ever so clear. It's not because there isn't a harvest out there. He says in verse 36, but when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them because they fainted and were scattered abroad as sheep having no shepherd. Jesus had compassion upon the people. But notice what he said unto the disciples. Then saith he unto his disciples, The harvest truly is plenteous, laborers are few. Pray ye therefore the Lord of the harvest that he will send forth laborers into his harvest. That's our calling, is to pray that God would send forth faithful laborers, ministers, elders, into the harvest, to reap the harvest. One last point from our text, and then I have a little application to make. I would have you notice in Micah 5, verses 5 and 6, that Christ reigns in the midst of His enemies. He doesn't immediately destroy his enemies, but rather places his people in the very midst of their enemies in order to demonstrate his power to save and deliver them out of the snares, the plots and designs of their enemies. To show forth his own power, his glory, his grace. Although the Lord did indeed deliver Judah from the Assyrians when they came to destroy Jerusalem. You'll remember, Hezekiah prayed fervently. The Assyrians were encamped around Jerusalem. They mocked the people of God within the city. And yet, the Lord sent His angel and destroyed the Assyrians, 186,000 of them that were encamped around Jerusalem. Yes, the Lord did miraculously deliver His people on that occasion. However, the Lord also allowed the same Assyrians to, to destroy Samaria, to overrun the northern kingdom of Israel. And so that to use the term Assyrian at this particular period of history was to the Israelite to say, the enemy of God, par excellence, the Assyrian. And because of that, dear ones, I would not only have you to see that this spoke very directly to Israel, 
with regard to God's deliverance of them in the midst of their enemies who surrounded them. But I would have you to see as well that the king of kings would be the one who would bring peace to his people by his death and resurrection. And when the enemy treads in the palaces, notice that's what it says that the Assyrian would do. In Micah 5, verse 5, And when he shall tread in our palaces, when the enemy treads in the palaces or the courts, of the city of Zion, which is his church. Then he would raise up, according to this text, seven shepherds, that is, ministers, and eight principal men, that is, magistrates. The principal men, literally, this refers to princes. He would raise up eight principal men, magistrates, to drive the enemy from the palaces or from the judicial courts of his church. Here the Lord not only gives a promise to His people of old, but as we look at what is promised here, we see as well that He promises that He would not allow His church to be destroyed, even in this day and age. Although many false teachers may arise, as we are told, they would arise in the New Testament. They may arise and within her courts trample her divine right of doctrine, her divine right of worship and government. Yet the Lord, according to our text, would send faithful pastors and faithful magistrates to defend and protect her. She may appear to be totally trampled into the ground. She may be, as it were, in the grave, in the dust, But the Lord says He would raise up His faithful witnesses to stir up the hearts of His people to war against the enemy until the enemy is destroyed. This is the victory that the Lord promises to us and is depicted in Revelation chapter 11. The two witnesses fight against the beast, against this civil and ecclesiastical beast against the Romish harlot, against the, the papist Antichrist and all of her daughters. For 1260 years, the faithful witnesses war against this one until God finally, in His sovereign plan, in His providence, allows the beast to overcome the faithful witnesses and they are slain. And for three and a half days, prophetic days, which are three and a half years, they lie in the streets. Their witness, the testimony of the Lord, appears to be dead, trampled into the ground by the enemies of God. But out of the dust, three and a half prophetic days later, three and a half years later, they are raised up in new witnesses and go forth to cry against, to prophesy against the Antichrist until the nations themselves turn against the Antichrist, against the harlot, and burn her. And she is destroyed. This is the victory 
that God has promised to his church. Now, by way of application, I have two questions to ask. You may ask at this point, dear ones, why does it appear that Christ is not reigning victoriously presently? And that rather the enemy seems to be victorious. Let me give to you a few reasons why it appears that way. First of all, the ways of the Lord are not always to manifest victory by a conspicuous defeat of the enemy for all to see. That is not always the way of the Lord in every circumstance to destroy the enemy right on the spot so that all can see. Many times, dear ones, we are victorious over our enemies not through their defeat, but through our suffering. So the Scripture teaches. Through our suffering, we overcome the enemy many times. That's how our victory is manifested so often. For through suffering, through temptations, through besetting sins, through financial losses, through chronic illnesses, God's grace, dear ones, is shown to be greater than our sin and greater than even our weaknesses. Greater than all of our enemies. The grace of God prevails through us and Christ is manifested to conquer His enemies through such weak vessels as you and myself. That glorifies God. It points to only God could be the one who has brought about such a victory in the life of a person who can go through such suffering and yet remain faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ. That is how we overcome. That's one reason. A second reason. Victory does not come all at once. But most often, dear ones, victory comes slowly, almost imperceptibly, by degrees, a little here, a little there. That is why very often you may not be the most objective person to judge For example, your own spiritual growth in life. You may be much more severe upon yourself. Just as if you you were to ask one of your children, can you see how much you've grown in the last few months? The child probably would say, no, I can't tell that I've grown any. But as one who is outside the situation, as a parent or one who hasn't perhaps seen the child in a few months, will come and say, wow, look how much you've grown. So, dear ones, we must recognize this is how victory comes so often in our lives. A little at a time. But nevertheless, God is bringing victory. By fighting long and hard against our sins and against various false teachings, we will not forget, dear ones, what cruel enemies they really are, and how we cry out to God to keep us from coming under their power ever again. See, that again is a reason for not seeing the victory immediately. God is teaching us 
we do not want to be overcome by these enemies. And he leaves us in that period of time to grow gradually out from underneath those besetting sins, those trials. Thirdly, remember that God, dear ones, is preparing us to enjoy his victory when we suffer under the scourge of our enemies. We noted that last Lord's Day. Whenever we undergo suffering, God is always preparing us for glory, for blessing, and for victory. He never takes from us that which He does not give to us abundantly more. If we would reign with Christ, the Scripture says we must first suffer with Him. Fourthly, when we fall before some enemy of our soul, whether it be pride or lust or unbelief or disloyalty to Christ or anger or false teaching, the fall is not the end that Christ the King has in view. Christ did not bring you that point simply to see you fall. But He's in full control. We fall so as to grow in our steadfast resolve to avoid that same trap and snare next time. We fall as to, so as to learn the subtle and the crafty schemes of the enemy so that we can avoid those same traps next time, so that we can help others to avoid those traps as well and to overcome the enemy. For, dear ones, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. When we have knowledge of the schemes of the enemy, we know how he works. That is to our advantage. If he has foiled us once, we now know how to avoid that in the future. And then fifthly, many times the Lord allows the enemy to temporally prevail over us so as to demonstrate more gloriously his power when he subdues the enemy for all to see. You remember how God raised up Pharaoh to show forth his own power, God's power, and how the raising up of Pharaoh, the enemy of the people of God, a type of Satan, how he raised him up, gave him power to overcome to enslave and bondage the people of God for a time, how he did so, so as to show his might and his power in destroying Pharaoh before the eyes of the whole world. And so, God, even now, may allow our enemies to temporarily prevail over us so as to set them up before all so they are destroyed once and for all. And finally, I ask this question as well. How may we be assured that Christ has established His rule in our hearts even in the midst of our enemies? The devil, the world, and the flesh. How do we know that Christ's kingdom, His rule, has been established in our hearts in the presence of our enemies. First of all, when we acknowledge our sins and weaknesses and cast ourselves upon the mercy of Christ, we know that He has established His kingdom 
within our heart. For you see, dear ones, when we are so weak and helpless and seem so overcome by a sinful passion, or when we feel so apathetic to the things of God and we do not know even how to pray, we were so low and so weak at that point in our lives. Yet, when we put ourselves in the way of God's mercy, where all we can do is simply throw ourselves at the door, the threshold of God's mercy seat, we can't even express our prayer, but we want to be in the way, just like blind Bartimaeus put himself in the way. And because he was in the way, and all he could say is, Lord, have mercy upon me. The Lord heard his prayer. See, the kingdom of God is established in the hearts of those who very weak, though very weak, are those who seek after the mercy of God. Secondly, how do we know when the Lord has established His rule in our hearts, even in the presence, in the midst of our enemies? Secondly, when we struggle against the enemy. When we fight the good fight of faith, when we struggle, when we resist, we know that the kingdom of God has been established in our hearts. When we simply play dead, fall over, and never resist the temptations the enemy brings our way. When we simply give in, when we're simply led by the nose as if we are bound and a captive, that's not a good, a good indication that the kingdom of God has been established in our hearts. But when we resist sin in our life, the enemy... You see, there there may be weakness in us, abundant weakness in us, where there is yet the kingdom of Christ reigning. The Apostle Paul in Romans 7 gives to us that struggle. The things that I want to do, I don't do. The things that I don't want to do, I do do. And yet the struggle goes on. The flesh and the spirit war one against the other. That's a sign that the kingdom of Christ has been established in the heart of a believer. Thirdly, when we hate the enemies of our soul, not when we simply have a neutral attitude, it's not that we speak well of them, but we just take kind of a a, a neutral attitude, that's not a sign. That's not the kind of evidence that we look for in our hearts. That the, that the kingdom of Christ has been established there. But when we hate the enemies of our soul, when we hate the enemies of Christ's kingdom, when we despise, dear ones, the very temptation that would draw us away to evil, that's an evidence that the kingdom of Christ has been established within us. Fourthly, when we long to be forever set free from the enemies of our soul and from all temptation to follow the lust of the flesh, the desires of the flesh, when it is our utmost desire, when we cry out to God, God, set me free from this once and for all. How I long for the kingdom of God to come in its fullness when I no longer have to struggle with this temptation when I no longer have to war against this sin, this besetting sin. 
Do you earnestly long to be glorified with the Lord in heaven that you may forever be set free from the devil, the world, and the flesh? That's a good indication and evidence that the kingdom of God has been established in your heart. And finally, when we are willing, dear ones, when we are willing to suffer the scorn and ridicule of men in order to receive the approval of Christ, when we are ready to go to whatever length and distance that it may take us for the cause of Jesus Christ, when we don't draw the line or the boundary and say, Lord, this far, but no further, am I willing to go? But when we lay down our lives and say, Lord, I will go as far as it is necessary to stand for the truth of Jesus Christ, to defend his cause, and to love thee, my God, and to love my brethren, then that's a good indication and evidence that the kingdom of Christ has been established in our hearts. A dear friend who is a covenanter, who is all by himself, has for many years stood by himself in seeking to be faithful in the cause of Christ and has had no fellowship, has had no one to stand with him, has told us, my family, that Psalm 124 is a psalm that has helped him through many a crisis, many a day of loneliness, suffering, because in this psalm it speaks of the victory of the Lord even in the midst of our enemies. Listen. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side, now may Israel say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side when men rose up against us, then they had swallowed us up quick. When their wrath was kindled against us, then the waters had overwhelmed us. The stream had gone over our soul. Then the proud waters had gone over our soul. Blessed be the Lord who hath not given us as a prey to their teeth. Our soul is escaped as a bird out of the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken and we are escaped. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, our eyes so often are blinded by our circumstances to see what Thou dost give to us to see. We are often like Elisha's servant, who merely see the, the enemy surrounding us, the forces of the Syrians, hundreds and thousands of them who have come against us. But, O oh God, we pray what Elijah prayed for his servant. Open, O oh God, his eyes. Open our eyes 
that we might see, O Lord, that the hosts of the God of heaven are mightier, are greater, that defend and support Thy people. Help us to see, O Father, that our our King, the Lord Jesus Christ, is already victorious and that He reigns in the midst of His enemies. Help us, O Lord, to cling to Thy promises that we faint not. O Father, we pray that the kingdom which Thou hast established in our hearts and lives would not be quenched, Lord, would not be destroyed, but that it would grow. Even if it grows ever so slowly, Father, according to Thy will, Help us, O Father, cause us to continue to serve Thee and to pray that Thy kingdom would come. Help us, Father, not to be an impediment and a hindrance to the growth of the kingdom, but, O Father, by all that we do and say to promote Christ's kingdom. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God, For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, 
and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.